0: Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Idle Chatter. I'm your host, Ray Bohax, the Hot Rod Farmer, coming to you from Cat Swamp Road. And I want to thank you so much for listening to me and for clicking in or downloading or whatever you do to hear hear this guy talk from New Jersey, right? Greatly, greatly, greatly appreciate it. And I also want to thank all of those that are reaching out to me and telling me that they are enjoying the back episodes of Idle Chatter, so I uh, was afraid that I was giving you too much Idle Chatter, but too much of me, right? Who the heck wants me every day? But uh, but I thank you for that, and uh, please know that I'm only doing it because I feel that there is educational value, intrinsic value in those shows, and uh, I just want to uh, bring those to, to the audience, and let it be their decision to uh, to listen or not. So, and we will see how that goes. If I don't get a, if I don't get much hate mail, which I haven't, I really don't get any hate mail on this show. I should say, uh, I really don't get any at all. So, uh, I guess that's pretty good. But uh, I guess people would just say, "Well, I'm just not going to listen to that guy." But you know, when you are in the public eye, it's like building engines. Uh, Ken Sperry he and his brother were both uh, design engineers uh, development engineers I don't think they may even had PhDs I don't remember but they they were uh, very very up in the engineering circles in General Motors in the engine development Uh, so and I was having lunch with him one day years ago at a Superflow conference and I may have shared this with you and he said to me that Ray, if you don't have holes in the sheetrock of your dino cell, you are not trying hard enough to make horsepower. So, And I used that many, many times. I modified uh, Mr. Sperry's statement to me, and that is true. So uh, when you're out in the public eye, and believe me, I am not really in the public eye, a very small small, to, uh, an amoeba in the public eye, then you're always going to get something, and if you're not getting any mail, then uh, then something is probably wrong. You're not trying hard enough to do your job, or so it says. Not that my job is to agitate people, but I did get a letter today. So funny uh, from Heming's Muscle Machines, and the uh, person. Matter of fact, I have to reach out to him. I always reach out to people, and uh, whether it's positive or negative, and he said that he read me. I don't know what issue. I guess fairly recently. And uh, we've we've discussed this on the show many times about ethanol and gasoline. And uh, I am not a, I'm I'm not I'm I'm not against ethanol and the gasoline whatsoever. I know a lot of people have had bad luck with or bad experiences, I should say, not luck with ethanol and, and gasoline in smaller engines. Uh, but whatever. So this is a that's a muscle car magazine, and he wrote how disappointed he is in me. <laughs> Uh, and I'm not laughing, that I uh, that I was a proponent of ethanol. And he says, then he said, well, I, then I found out that you're a farmer, so you're probably making a ton of money off of selling corn for ethanol plants and ruining people's cars. So, uh, well, I'm going to reach out to him in a very nice and professional way, because he's certainly entitled to his opinion. And uh, for those who do listen and read me in Hemming's Muscle Machines, which I know there is a uh, there is a, a number of you. I don't know how many, uh, not a million of you. But the thing is that I raise sweet corn. Sweet corn does not go for ethanol. Sweet corn is what you eat, what goes uh, so uh, on the barbecue grill. So it has nothing to do with ethanol whatsoever. And I did a show on my ra- I did a uh, a radio show, Farm Machinery Digest Radio about a month or so ago when uh dodge introduced the the new demon srt i think 170 i don't remember what the name of it is but anyway it's it's the version with 1025 horsepower from the factory and that is uh designed to run on e85 and this person's getting all ticked off because i I supported E10 or E15. Well, that, that, so and I said on that show, if, if you want to listen to it, you could go to uh, my website or any major podcast hosting sites. as Farm Machinery Digest. Uh, I forgot what episode it is. It was sometime in the beginning of April. And uh, I said that the, you know, Chrysler, or Stellantis, they call it today, building that car has actually... Uh, debunked the myth of ethanol ruining engines now granted um i don't want to open up this can of worms all right there it's like anything i mean years ago gasoline used to turn to varnish and the the accelerator pump would swell up and the gas would swell up so over time it doesn't happen overnight and but that car that demon 1025 horsepower demon on e85 from the factory kind of just debunked Everybody saying that ethanol in gasoline ruins everything, and that is E85, so it's 85% ethanol. But it's like anything in life, it has to be application specific. Now, if you were to probably take, not probably, if you were to take a uh, a 19, whatever, 55 Chevy, and it had the original carburetor gaskets in it, what have you, an accelerator pump. Not that it would probably have that original stuff from so many years ago, but just as just as an example, and you put modern gasoline in it, but there's a lot of other things in modern gasoline that were not in older gasoline uh, years ago, but people just like to put, the, put a target on the ethanol. So uh, whatever, I mean, I everybody could everybody's entitled to their opinion but the opinion uh should need to be based in facts and if it is not based in facts then it, you should at least express your uh, your reason for for uh for saying something for instance and i know a lot of a lot of my listeners and i hundred percent 110 percent respect that is that they uh they're big fans of japanese cars I am not a fan of Japanese cars. It has nothing to do with them being Japanese. It has nothing to do with anything. I honestly don't think that they're better or worse than anything else. But for patriotic reasons and for for and for uh, American reasons, I am not for sending money overseas to buy a product that could be made here. So so somebody could come and say, well, they make some Japanese cars here and they make German cars here. And I, granted, and I <clears throat> I agree with that a thousand percent. And then you can, and then the domestic auto industry has also shot themselves in the foot, as far as I am concerned. And I didn't expect the show to go this way, <laughs> but as far as I'm concerned, by choosing to make prod make their vehicles of either in uh, Mexico right so if somebody comes to me and says i bought this toyota camry and it's it, it's made in the united it's assembled in the united states and this is that and, and the guy is going to work every morning and uh the guy from uh from kentucky right georgetown kentucky and he's going to work and he's got a and then making a, making a salary and bringing home and feeding his family and and uh, somebody else bought a uh a uh chevy blazer my neighbor bought a chevy blazer and it's made in mexico <laughs> that person would be 100 percent correct and why i say that the american auto industry has shot themselves in the foot is that by by outsourcing or or going to a different country to make uh, some of their vehicles they claim that all of them some of them then they basically have given a truthful fodder factual fodder for somebody who buys a an american or canadian assembled honda or toyota or whatever kia right because you basically took the the thunder out of my message right but but the thunder on my message is rooted for when american stuff was made in america not american branded and on that same theme is that uh basically shooting yourself in the foot but they don't care anymore. They're just—they're just—they're not Americans. They're just corporate entities. That's all they are. Sadly, they—they they try to. Uh, I don't even think they try to wave the flag anymore. To be quite honest with you, but uh, the the new Lincoln Nautilus, I believe it's the Nautilus, is going to be made in China. So, so, I mean, I don't want a Chinese Lincoln. I'm sorry. I'm not. I'm not a racist. I'm not. I'm a patriot. All right, I don't want a Chinese Lincoln. And the impetus for that, they claim, is twofold. Number one is that the sell, they sell more cars in China than they do in the United States. Lincoln, well, that's sad. But that's also starting to change. And I'll discuss that in a second. Not that you wanted to hear that. <laughs> but uh, just fast forward, just fast forward, get past this. Uh, but also, the plant up outside of Toronto in uh, oakville ontario which i've ridden by that plant a, a few times in my life it's right along i believe that's the queen elizabeth way there uh as you're going i guess you'd be going west on the it's on the right hand side either west or north i don't know which way it's going at that particular direction or that, at that location uh, the plant is right there and they're converting that plant over to electric vehicles so in essence that so so there's an another uh another casualty of this craziness of converting over to to electric vehicles but let's not just keep ford I mean, let's not just pick on ford right even though i'm a i guess i'm a ford guy but the buick i think it's called Enclave. uh they have everything is with an e just like years ago general olsenville everything was a cutlass a cutlass this cutlass that i think it's called the enclave actually i mean i'm not much of an suv person but it is a nice looking vehicle from you know from the outside i never rode in one or been in one but that's made in china <laughs> and then volvos uh china, the chinese uh, chinese government bought volvo and not every volvo but a lot of volvos are made in china and then there's uh one cadillac that is made in china and there's a bunch of other things that are made in China. So, uh, so like I said, they're shooting themselves in the foot with the good, hard-working people of the United States and Canada. And they're giving, and they basically debunked uh, my argument. So, as I said in the show a while back, I want an American-made product made in America or Canada. Thank you. Is that too much to ask? So... That is that, and uh, let me see what else I want to tell you. I don't think there's uh, too much else here here going on. Uh, working on my sprayer, and uh, and hope I got some parts for that. I had a problem with my sprayer. It's a three-point hitch sprayer, crop care sprayer, beautiful sprayer. I had it custom built in 2009, which is hard to believe. It's 14 years old, and uh, what would happen is that if I ran the spray when when the sprayer was brand new it could be completely empty run it completely dry put whatever in water whatever you want to put in put 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 water in uh kick on the pto the pump would run maybe for five seconds ten seconds and you'd have the pressure needle would be rock steady and then uh what had happened and if you didn't run it out of liquid whatever i guess i'm using the term liquid because whatever you happen to have in the sprayer uh and you could let it sit all winter like i put my i put the rv antifreeze to winterize it and let it sit all winter and don't run it dry boom as soon as you turn the pt on boom the pressure goes right up beautifully like it should and it was not like that when it was new when it was new you could run it completely dry and it would build pressure immediately uh beautifully and then what had happened was that the it's it's got three booms to it three sections so that booms excuse me and uh about two years ago, the manifold for the boom, the boom control manifold section uh, for different sections, uh, started to get a little pinhole and and start to uh, spray a mist out. And so I bought a new manifold last year, and I replumbed it. And then also I put a new pump on it because the uh, seal on the pump was leaking. And I was going to send the pump out. Well, maybe two years ago now, I was going to send the pump out to. Uh, what the heck is the name of the company Hypro because they have a rebuild service because it's it's not terrible to rebuild but I wanted to change the bearings and everything and not just the rollers and you have to have a you have to have not I'm going to say a special jig you got to press the bearings off with a on, on a on a press and you have to fixture it and I really don't have the time or the inclination to do that and uh to do it once every six or seven years so i figured i'll buy a new pump i bought the same pump it's i think the hypro gold or silver the one that'll withstand 24d not that i spray 24d but anyway and uh figured okay it wasn't a lot of money to rebuild it was like a hundred dollars or something but then COVID hit, and they said, "Oh, we can't rebuild it because of COVID and whatever." So I said, "So I still have that sitting in the shed. I should really send it out." So any basically, in essence, I had the new pump, and then I had the new manifold on it, and then uh, I put on when I put the new manifold on, I replumbed it. I bought the proper hose uh right from crop care people the factory hose uh put that on there beautiful right and still had the problem of the uh of of not wanting to prime and then last year and i maybe even said this on the show it depended upon the specific what i'm gleaning is the specific gravity of whatever the tank mix i had in there uh i'd be going through the field and uh, as the And as the level got low and it would be sloshing around in the tank, right, uh, I would lose prime and I couldn't get it back. I let it set to sit for like 20 minutes. So that was really a nightmare because you have product in there that you have to keep agitating. Otherwise, it's going to solidify and you're off to the races. Anybody who's had that happen, no, it's no fun. And uh, there was no rhyme or reason to it. So I said to myself, but if the tank was full, uh, it didn't do that, but I really that's I really can't substantiate that because it, the two times it happened. But if you know if you're out in the field spraying and you're halfway through a spray job and you have a what if there, a, a hundred gallons, fifty gallons, whatever, something left in the tank, unless you got a big fifteen hundred gallon spray tank, all right, uh, and something happens, it is not that's does not make your day. <laughs> so let me just tell you because. If, even though you could shut off the valve and do anything in the boom or whatever, but if you have to get in the tank for something, you really can't do it. So um, what? It, so it seems that it's loosening its siphon, and then they have a anti-vortex valve in there, and it, it's all everything is plastic, so it doesn't react with the with whatever you're spraying for the fertilizer, nitrogen, you know, deteriorates everything. So um, I bought everything new from Crop Care so i bought the whole suction side new uh i bought the, the new anti-vortex uh diffuser in there and i bought the the new filter assembly new valve everything because i'm thinking that it's either a crack or something in that anti-vortex uh diffuser i'll call it in there or the seal on the, on the valve, the shuttle valve or something is uh, sucking a little bit of air and that's what's messing it up. But I would tend to think it's probably in the tank with that anti-vortex valve because last year it seemed to be uh, very sensitive to the uh, amount of product, the amount of liquid. We'll go back to saying that in the tank. And uh, it doesn't take much on the suction side of any pump. For you to i'm calling it i'm calling it the siphon to lose the siphon i don't know if that's actually a hundred percent of the proper term to call a siphon the siphon effect but it doesn't take much at all for you to lose the siphon or if you lose the siphon for not to move any product and why I think it was happening uh, with specific tank mix partners, and maybe I'm inventing a science that doesn't <laughs> has no validity whatsoever. You know, lots of times in engineering and in and in farming or whatever, most things in life, you see something and you try to figure it out and you invent a science for it. That's what we call in engineering, inventing a science. I mean, we're, just like I said last week in the show, I'm still waiting for my valve my bottom of my carburetor on my John Deere tractor, uh, but you know, did, did the overcharging of having the broken battery and burn out the solenoid. <laughs> well, I don't think sixteen volts should take it out, but uh, who knows? Maybe it was coincidental, or maybe it wasn't. So did I invent the science for the specific gravity of the tank mix partner to be much more the sprayer being much more sensitive when I had some when I had a product in there that had a lower specific gravity, almost close to the specific gravity of water then everything seemed to be fine or not seemed to be it was fine and when I put something that had had four or five different components in it and had a higher specific gravity so maybe the weight per gallon was you know 12 pounds 11.9 pounds or something that's when it seemed to to rear its ugly head and the fact of the matter is, is it was very hard to test because the tractor and the sprayer had to be moving it it couldn't be stationary when it was stationary it did not happen and if i put water in it it did not happen it had to have some sort of complex tank mix partner uh, with a higher specific gravity so it made it almost impossible for me to diagnose other than trying to connect the dots and seeing what's happening but lots of times when you do connect the dots with diagnostics is that you are wrong the only good thing about this particular instance is that I re-plumbed the sprayer last summer. I put the new manifold on it, Uh, new manifold, new, uh, I call it bypass valve, throttling valve. They call it new gauge, everything, because everything was old. It was 13 years old at the time. And uh, we're 12 years old and the plastic was starting to crack and uh, the gauge was weeping a little bit. So I said, everything new, Uh, put that on there, put new hoses on. There was nothing wrong with the hoses, but they were getting a little bit hard on the outside put on new hose nice pliable hose new fittings so it has the the two-year-old pump and then so the only thing that is old 14 years old is the suction side and so i think that it's probably in that diffuser so when i take that apart I am going to study that with a magnifying glass so that I could learn and see whether it had a crack or something in it. And that is why it would because I when it was I'm like I said, inventing a science. But I think when it was when the product was low in the tank and it was sloshing around, it would expose that crack and it would uh suck air and once it's sucked there, bingo you'd have to try to bleed that get that air out of the system for it to start the siphon believe it or not and i said to his before my oil burner pump does the same thing and it didn't do it for 20 years and the past couple of years it'll be running fine all of a sudden it'll 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 lose its siphon and the and the four bolts that hold the pump together the end cap on the pump they're not really loose they just lose a little bit of lose a, lose a little bit of torque, and and. I had taken it apart with my friend Tony. We cleaned it. We put new gasket in there because I thought that the gasket was was just already um, deteriorated or fully compressed. And every couple of months, I have to I go and keep a, a quarter-inch drive um, a offset box end wrench there. And I go by the pump. and I, tight, I They only take like an eighth of a turn, but that's enough for it to break its siphon. And hopefully, that's what's happening with my sprayer all righty so that is that and uh, i'm just going to get a drink of water here for a second um, i'm not going to put on the dragster not that i will never do that again but if you remember last week i uh i messed up and uh, canceled the show, and then uh, Sue Moore uh, used her handiwork to uh, put the two files together. Because as it comes out of the roadcaster, it comes out as uh, it would come out then as a, if as, if you started over as a separate file. And I personally don't have the ability to do that. I should <clears throat> I should learn how to do it. With the 10 million other things that I should learn but I really I guess you know in life you got to choose your poison right okay I'm just stepping away from the microphone a little bit here and that is that so I brought you up to date with everything and I want to thank you for your interest in listening to it and also uh I want to thank uh, Justin Forsey Uh, We had a very nice conversation the other day over the telephone, and um, he said that we never spoke. For some reason, I thought we did speak, and uh, I'm trying to convince him to uh, do an on-the-road podcast with me. I think he would be very, very interesting, uh, from the little bit I know about him, uh, has a very interesting story, um, passionate about agriculture, passionate about farming, uh, passionate about machinery i don't think he i don't think he's a hot rodder though, but i may be wrong justin are you a hot rodder you a drag racer uh, so uh i know he's passionate about machinery and he also is a an attorney so i know i have a couple of attorneys listening but i know that he is an attorney and uh he works for a very prestigious international law firm so uh that is uh really wonderful and i think that he would have a great episode but as i say to everybody it is up to them to be on the show and i make into those who i may be coming out to you and asking whether you want. not coming out don't worry i'm not gonna be knocking on your door it's a nightmare if i knock on your door that's uh just tell me nobody's home right and uh that you know, I make the deal, and I told Justin the same thing, is that we could do, record the episode, and if the episode and let them, and I could send them the file, and if they don't like it, they press erase. That's it. I mean, it's. I mean, I I offer that to everyone. Uh, Justin happens to live in New Jersey, so he's about um, about a hundred miles away, I guess. But we will if we do end up doing something, we're going to meet at my friend Bob Ida's shop because it's like the halfway mark, and he could see Bob's cars and his ford gt which is the gt supercar not the gt mustang but before i go i'm sorry i'm taking so long 25 minutes again oh god i need to give a big old cat swamp road shout out to mr west diamond and uh it he's and his last name his surname is spelled with a y d y m o n d dime i guess it's diamond i would pronounce it and wesley goes by wes and he is a farmer and his family farms and he sent me uh and they all also have careers off the farm and wes is in finance but he's very passionate about farming very passionate about machinery and he sent me uh some pictures or a picture of a tractor that is i don't want i'm not mentioning what kind it is Wes, because i don't want to get the model wrong <laughs> but if and his dad had purchased it when he was when his dad was about 19 years old it was a couple of years old and it's still on the farm and still working and he is from i'm gonna hopefully i'll mess it up Wes stratoroy or uh, not a no there's no no a there stratroy stratroy ontario canada so i want to thank you so much for listening from stratroy uh stratroy ontario canada i wrote it big so i don't mess it up i probably didn't mess up and he's in uh what i guess i would consider it western ontario and not too far from the michigan border right so that is uh that's great and it's great to know that I have such a uh, wonderful listener over there in that part of Ontario and uh, I was th- that and uh, that part of Ontario uh, I was there years ago well not as far as Stratroy because I really don't know I, I don't know exactly where Stratroy is. I put a pin in my map in the, in that lo- in that clo- uh, close enough for government work, but I was to uh, Woodstock Ontario a number of years ago. And I was very surprised that uh, that they uh, they grew tobacco in, in at the time in Woodstock ontario they grew tobacco i was surprised i got off the like, i don't think that's not the queen elizabeth way i think that may be the 403 or 405 or four uh, respectfully to everyone who listens in ontario i get confused with the roads because they're all with the fours it must mean something like maybe it means east westers or what's that well it will be east west so there must be just like on the american interstate system you know an odd number goes north and south an even number goes east and west so there's probably something with the 400 series roads in Ontario or in Canada but I don't know what it is but um, I'm beginning off the uh, the highway there and lo and behold I said that looks like tobacco and it was and if anybody lives in that area there was a, there used to be when I was there a number of years ago there was a, uh, a Tim Hortons and I stopped there and I got a Tim Hortons coffee and it was a beautiful beautiful day in june beautiful sunny day I remember and i sat outside and drank my tim hortons coffee coffee so all right what are we going to talk about today a half hour into it again again i am sorry guys but uh, on our farm we have or i have i guess a week because it's a family farm right we have very low cec soil and CEC, CEC stands for Cation Exchange Capacity, all right? And uh, I'm, I'm not going to go too much into it, but the, the CEC is, uh, there is no real value for CEC. It's a um, calculated value is probably the best word I should say. Just like horsepower is a calculated value on an engine from torque. Torque is the amount of work an engine can do in horsepower in simplistic Form is how fast it can do that work so as i understand it and i know there's agronomists listening so i if i have this incorrectly please reach out to me at hot rod farmer at farm machinery digest.com and if that is the case then i need to be corrected and then as an aside i wasted my money and my time driving to sykes missouri twice for the ag phd soils clinic right so uh that was an excellent excellent class and i drove to sykeston one the first time in a snowstorm and i will say respectfully to those in the sykeston missouri area and i have a friend of mine danny stevens who farms with his son and he's in Thai, missouri which is south of sykeston a little bit all right but anyway um but respect phase are saying you guys don't know what to do with a foot of snow down there let me just tell you i'll leave it at that but anyway is i understand it that the cec is a mathematic calculation or you i'll use that term and it's based upon the amount of organic matter you have in the soil the amount of clay in the soil and the amount and the type of clay so those three things come together to determine what the cec is and like i said it's a calculation and in a practical sense in agriculture they say okay you have heavy ground or light ground <clears throat> the higher the cec what they would it would be qualified as heavy ground so somebody says, Well, i got heavy ground well you know it's like i got a lot of horsepower well what's the number well i have what's considered very light or sandy ground so I have a very low CEC. It bounces. You say, well, why why should it bounce around? Well, we won't get into that, but it bounces around a little bit every time you pull soil sample because you're not pulling it in the same spot. And we're going to talk about that and make, a, make an analogy towards engines or machinery, not just engines. And uh, <clears throat> mine is around six, all right? It was as high as seven point something one time and it floats around six all right the one field i think is 6.5 and the other field is 5.9 or or i should have had my it's about that it's about a little bit less than six all right and um and so that is qualified if you would speak to a farmer that that's what we would call sandy ground now the thing basically is why i'm telling you this Is because it is a very good example of what my show subject is going to be about, if we ever get there with this long-winded guy. And uh, when you have low CEC soil, it's it's what they would call very tight. So it's like sand on the beach. You could say, well, sand on the beach isn't tight. Well, the molecules of the sand, the piece the the, the particles of sand, they say, are very small. So it's it's very it's very it could pack very close together. Whereas if you have soil that has a lot of different, has more aggregate in it, more this, more that, then it's got bigger, smaller pieces, and it tends not that tends to have more more air gaps in it, right? But since my soil is very considered tight, low CEC all right it has the ability to compact very easily and uh, it also does not have a lot of moisture holding capacity or then again moisture and nutrient holding capacity because what will happen is that it will it, as far as moisture is concerned because it is very sand, sandy or very tight soil is that it will uh evaporate out and i won't get into what believe me i'm no expert on agronomy but i won't it's it's moot at this particular point to get into the little bit i know about why it has more evaporative effect than tighter ground and also because i have low organic matter soil so if you remember cec is the the amount of clay the amount of the, the type of clay the amount of clay and the amount of organic matter and i'm doing no till and cover crops and i am building my organic matter up i'm a little bit over 3% now which is wonderful for me because when i started this journey i was probably about 1.7 to 1.9% organic matter all right and uh, so between the organic matter and the cec of the soil it's you're going to have certain effects so my soil if we are so my soil is very drought intolerant so i have a good crop when we get a lot of little rains or a lot of rains or even just a little rains because if we don't get rains my soil because it's so light tends to evaporate out the moisture very quickly i also have a some nutrients move in the soil some don't move in the soil i'm always boron deficient because boron doesn't stay any place but in low cec soil it just goes down to china all right so anyway so there are different obstacles there with that with that soil so it's uh like i say it's, it's very intolerant of a lack of rain uh my crops will 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 if you know if we start to go into a dry spell in hot weather it will go and it'll start to give up a lot of the uh the moisture very quickly and that's why i went to no-till and then but as a farmer and and you will know that that there's soil the soil variability within the field so you may have a you so if you had a let's say whatever a hundred acre ten acre field let's say. All right, and you had, then you took a soil test over here, and you took a soil test five hundred feet away, took a soil test a thousand feet away, whatever. Is that you'll have a certain level of variability in the soil, and the whole idea is that a good farm, meaning, uh, all right, meaning that it's a, that good soil, good ground, is that will have a minimal variability. So you have an incline, you have a hill, whatever. You're going to have variability, but what also happens is that even though <clears throat> let's say that you have minimal variability you've been blessed you got some of that beautiful soil in iowa that no matter where you go you could pull out or, or even out by from what i saw then uh out over there by by uh, woodstock ontario from the car it looked like beautiful soil i don't know whether it is or not until you look pull a soil sample but anyway is that you will find <clears throat> that you have uh You have microbiology variability so the soil test is looking at one thing it's looking at the at the the characteristics and the nutrients in the soil but that's why we don't call it dirt because dirt is what's on the garage floor soil is living and breathing and you'll have different microbial activity in different parts of the maybe even five feet away you'll have different microbial activity all right just due to whatever it could be damper there it could be shadowy there it could be a, a rock there or it could just be whatever the way god made it all right or years ago when you used to plow maybe you plowed deeper there so who knows all right a, a number of different things that could happen so when you put it together all right, to a person, and that's not my audience. To a person that farms, that doesn't farm, it's like, okay, it's a farm. It looks all the same. Everything is the same. It would have you right, and uh, but as a farmer, and especially a row crop farmer, is that you very, very quickly realize that there's a great level of variability within a field that and even of the variability is not in the soil type it's in the microbiology and the microbiological uh climate i'll use the word climate or conditions that are there and and also the soil type um the CEC and organic matter is gonna dictate some of the decisions you make. So that's what I'm talking about here. And I'm gonna finally bring it into this. Is that when you have an engine, you have machinery, whatever it is, you have some type of machinery on your farm or not even on your not even let's say you don't even farm, right? But and you have two different vehicles you have your wife's vehicle and you have your vehicle and the thing is that there is going to be variability in that and i'm not talking about design variability like soil you got both the same cars all right same trucks it makes no difference but just like there's there's variability in the microbiology within the soil, 10 feet away, 15 feet away, 5 feet away, 6 inches away, all right, that it, that it goes and hopefully it doesn't wander all over the map, but there's variability in the where and the service procedures and the service intervals that you're going to have to assign to every piece of machinery or every vehicle that you have and that's why i brought that segue in so the thing is that now for somebody who is you know getting back to well you're just your farm you put the seed in the ground and it grows well there's a heck of a lot more to it than that i wish it was that easy but for somebody like me who's who farms with very low cec soil and very low organic well just lower lower than mine <clears throat> but for somebody who's got 10 12 13 percent organic matter even six seven percent i'm very very low so low so i have low cec soil and low organic matter soil <clears throat> is that i have to adjust my farming practices and that is one of the things years ago uh that actually was was part of the human effect that created the Dust Bowl out in Oklahoma and Texas and Kansas out there because the farmers came from back east. They came from Pennsylvania. They came from Ohio. They came from Kentucky, and they moved out there. And if you, listen to, if you look at any history of the Dust Bowl, I mean, there was a, a, a horrific drought, so we're not going to deny that. That was one of the components there. But but most of that land was native grasslands and the people came from from the east, from the northeast and east, and they went out there and they farmed it. They mold board plowed it. <coughs> excuse me. And a lot of people will tell you, I'm gonna get my uh my water here and uh <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> and uh <coughs> they farmed it. <coughs> And they 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 use the same farming practices that they would have used in Pennsylvania or Eastern Ohio, and they and that's why some people say the moldboard plow created the dust bowl. And the moldboard plow was one of the elements. I mean, if there wasn't that severe drought, it wouldn't have been that much of an issue. But 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 whenever you move soil, and just just the other day by the time you listen to this it'll be a week in illinois i think it was off of i-55 in farmerville and i've gone through farmerville but not on i-55 it's a couple of miles off of there so i know farmerville so oh, i should i think there's a nice big grain elevator there uh there was a terrible somebody some farmer and there's not no knock on the farmer that he tilled the ground and he loosened and i don't know whether he probably they said he plowed it. he probably didn't plow it he probably disked it or something but anyway and there was a lot of wind and it was dry, and there was a terrible dust storm that came across the interstate, which was almost like a whiteout condition. And there was a, uh, a I think, 80 or 90 car pileup, and a number, of, a few people gotten killed, uh, sadly, and a number of people injured. So the mold. So basically, what they did was, and they went out to the to the Oklahoma and Texas and Kansas, the the East Coast farmers back in the 1920s and 30s is they farm the land because that's the only thing they knew, right, to bring out, plow out and plow it. Well, the problem that we have with machinery is that uh, the maintenance schedules that the manufacturers usually, excuse me, usually give us, and I had, uh, is based upon what we would call a normal or traditional use so that would be like me saying well all of my soil is the same all over my whole farm and as i said a few minutes ago that is not the case on any farm you're hoping to have a a minimal amount of variability but for instance let's take two cars we'll use that as an example then we could we could move that over to farm tractors all right and the thing is that we take two cars and and actually, this is uh, was my, I mean, in my house, my house, that uh, in I had bought at the time a new Ford Escort, sc 4 C4-door sedan, and six months later, I bought my wife a new Escort, but I bought her the two-door, the ZX2. So basically, a lot of the parts were interchangeable, two different motors. Mine was a single overhead cam motor. Charlotte's was a double overhead cam, had more horsepower, all right, than mine, uh... Did her car was the sporty two-door with a moon roof and everything in it, and mine was the, the stodgy sedan, right? But uh, but in essence, I mean, the oil filters were the same, the brakes were the same, the tires were the same. Uh, <clears throat> the fuel filter was the same. The battery was the same. Uh, the alternator was different because it was housed in a different location. But, but it, you know, 95% of the parts were were the same so in other words if you needed to get a heater control which I never did that was the same in the two-door and the four-door so there was a lot of commonality there but Charlotte was using her car predominantly in local driving in the city uh, because at that particular time her mother was alive and she was uh, staying with her mother to take care of her because my mother and Charlotte's father died three months apart from one another and my father got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and her mother had a lot of heart and respiratory problems. So what, and where Charlotte teaches is only th- four or five miles from where she grew up and where her mother lived. And then my father lived right here on the farm. His house is like 800 feet away from mine, the old farmhouse. So anyway, so what happened was that we had made a decision, even though we were newlyweds, we had made a decision that to be. That, that we needed to be honor, and take care of our family as the scriptures say and so what charlotte basically did for a number of years until her mother died uh was that she would stay during the week down and take care of her mother and then she'd go to school go to work to school from there it was only a couple miles away and then she would come up on friday night after school Then she would go down to down to school on monday morning and then during the summertime when there was no school she would be a cup two or two or three days here and then two or three days down at her mother and so it worked out very very well but the reason for me telling you this is that when she was down at her mom's house and going to school that she was basically driving in a suburban I don't want to say urban environment, suburban environment. Uh, Stop and go, uh, never got over 25 or 30 miles per hour or what have you. And then when she would get out on Route 80 to come here, the car would be able to stretch its legs. It was 55, 60 miles. So in essence... Now, I was the polar opposite. I was here on the farm. Any place I went with the car was highway speeds. uh, my, my was traveling a lot for business. So I was actually putting three times the mileage on my car than she was her, on her car literally three They were six months apart when she hit 100,000 I hit 300,000 and uh, when when she hit 150,000 I had 450 all right so through through this whole journey I was three times the amount of mileage than her but I had two different maintenance schedules and two different approaches to taking care of the vehicles even though they were both Ford Escorts and the thing is that, for instance, Charlotte would never get more than maybe 30,000 miles out of a set of tires when I would get 110,000 miles out of a set of tires. You say, well, why, why, why was that happening? Well, you're not taking care of your wife. we are not taking care of her tire pressure. we are not rotating them. No, that was not the case whatsoever. And the thing was that what a lot of people don't realize is that she's not burning rubber, all right? But the fact of the matter is when you drive a car, I've to... Car, truck, whatever vehicle, and you're going more in that type of environment. Every time that you're turning the wheel, you make a right turn on this street, a left turn over here. You over here change lanes. All right, you are actually wearing the tires at a higher rate. I was predominantly doing country straight road or traveling a lot for business at highway driving on interstates, where you have very where you're going straight for a very long period of time, and if you do have a curve, you have a gentle curve. A gentle the, the the interstate is not taking and making a right angle turn so when she would be snaking her way through the streets of of cedar grove and bloomfield new jersey to get to the school so she was making left right right left all the time right angle turns all right to turn onto this street turn onto that street i was not doing that that wears tires she also would start and stop a lot meaning she'd stop to go to the corner it's a stop sign or there's just the three blocks there is a there's a traffic light so you say well how does starting and stopping affect tires using that as an example well the thing basically is then again she's not burning rubber but the whole idea is that when you go to pull away from a, from a stop on anything, a farm tractor, a dirt road makes no difference, is that you're transferring more torque to the drive wheels. In this particular instance, it was a front-wheel drive, right? Front-wheel drive car, so front-wheel drive wheels. But that also grabs at the tread of the tire, all right? The other thing, basically, when I'm using this as an example, and then we're going to convert this over to farm machinery, all right, is that... When I would get on the high, let's say I used to go to i used to go to Ohio or either Ohio or Michigan once a month all right literally because I was teaching classes the uh on last week's show, I was talking about the Axel Digital Fuel Injection System, and uh, I uh, would t- taught classes for them. I used to teach classes once a month, and it was either also on the West Coast where I'd fly. But uh, either it was uh, two locations in, in Ohio, either Cleveland or Lima, or in, or, or, and I used to go to engineering meetings in Wixom, Michigan. Never taught in, in Wixom. We never held the class, there, but I would go to Wixom quite often so uh what happened was that i'd get on the highway right and uh you're running 65 70 miles per hour you're going straight but the thing to keep in mind is that, with very rare exception once i got up to speed unless i had to stop for some reason the transmission stayed in fourth gear it was a four-speed automatic lock-up converter all right i used to even marvel because that little that little ford she Climb those long grades on Route 80 in Pennsylvania. They're not Rocky Mountain grades, but the suckers are long, all right. And it would, at most, it would unlock the converter clutch. It would never downshift, all right. But now, so I could let's say I went 300 miles without stopping, right? That my transmission was in fourth gear, lockup, for 300 miles. Well, Charlotte's driving five or six miles, all right. She's going. I'll say city streets, suburban streets, how many shifts is that transmission going through versus mine? So my car with three times the mileage on it had probably one-tenth the shifts, all right, that she had. I mean, and even if it was a manual, it would be the same thing, right? But she she has an automatic. She can't drive a manual right same thing with brake applies well how many times did the brakes have to touch the rotors or the shoes so when you put this all together is that and if you look at a farm tractor so let's say you have that's i know there's a lot of a lot of uh, listeners that uh are row crop farmers, and they also feed some livestock or feed some cattle, or they're in dairy, or they're, they're, they're dairy farmers, and they're feeding cattle, taking care of cattle, cleaning manure, moving manure out, and they're growing some crops. Well a type of the type of machine whether it's a tractor or a skid a tractor with a loader on it or a skid steer or right, if you're feeding cattle using that as an example and you're going forward and back and making left turns right turns you're idle i mean the engine is never idling you're stepping on the throttle whatever there's a lot of transient operation and so that trend and it's obviously it's gonna be a different level than Charlotte with a car, but there's a lot of transient operation versus getting out in the tractor, setting the auto steer and planting a thousand acres or five thousand acres. We can't plant plant five thousand acres in a day, but you know what I'm saying, is that so there's a lot of transient operation. Same thing if you have a skid steer, right? Well, one of the great things about a skid steer you go in and you pick up of a manure or something, you back up, you spin it around, whether it has tracks or whether it has tires, it makes no difference, all right? and the thing is that you are moving maneuvering around a lot in and out on the brakes on the clutch changing gears accelerating de-accelerating and even things like acceleration of the engine you may not think of it all right but and i'm not saying that you you you're bringing it up on the chip and six grand and dumping the clutch on it all right but the fact of the matter is is that when you are accelerating when you i shouldn't say accelerating transient operation when you look at a timing belt or a timing chain on an engine, or a drive chain on anything, right, is that if you have a transient operation, you're loading and unloading that chain. You're loading and unloading that 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 accessory drive. I used to call it fan belt years ago, but there's no fan, right? So uh, the alternator belt, the the timing belt on the engine, all right. You're so if you look, if you for instance with the take a take two, ve- two uh, use vehicles because it's a, it's easier to make an analogy to that with mileage if you take two vehicles exactly the same the same motor same everything and you have one that has 50,000 miles of even though over the same amount of time whatever say a year and a half whatever whatever number you want to say and had a lot of transient operation the timing belt, the drive belts, everything will have substantially more wear than somebody like me who went on the highway and kept it at one RPM, all right? So the take-home message here for you is that because as I always say on this show and on my radio show is that there's two types of return on investment there's direct return on investment and there's indirect return on investment direct return on investment is almost like saying you buy a you have a bank account and you're getting interest so you do and and farming is is so uh the return on investment is so is, is such a big part of farming, but every business, but when you're growing a crop and you say, okay, fine, I'm going to put a fungicide on it, the fungicide is going to cost me whatever, $3 per acre to put on it, I'm hoping to get this yield bump on it, because we're always after a yield bump, right? And whatever the, whatever the crop may be, it's a yield bump, looking for a yield bump, so you're putting $3 on <clears throat> to put this fungicide, and I like to use fungicide because it's very, uh, it's just a common... It's a good example, and you're expecting to get a bushel more of corn and uh, let's say corner six dollars a bushel right now i think it was just a little bit less than six dollars on the chicago board of trade excuse me when i uh, just before i did this show and so let's say six dollars and of course you three dollars so you have a return on investment of three dollars well that's direct all right there's a there's a cause and there's isn't an, an, an effect there's an action and an effect well indirect roi basically is something that you say well you know i for instance like i tell people i've told i've beaten you listeners to death and i know a number of you do it i know probably a number of you do not which is fine because it's only my my job to bring you this information you you do with what you want to do is that you know opening the hood and letting the heat out of it engine whatever car truck farm tractor combine what have you and that one need to go through that heat soak well that's indirect roi all right, because now you could go, uh, whatever, so many miles or so many hours and, and have no mechanical failure. So so you could look back and say, well, I never had a problem with that. And you could probably attribute it to that yo-yo from hot rod farmer who told me to open the hood and let the heat out all right, and whereas if somebody who doesn't, then they're putting a timing belt, they're putting an ECU, they have a cracked cylinder head, what have you? They're, they're putting a fan belt on, and the water pump is failing. So that's indirect ROI. It's that you're getting a you're getting a return on your investment, but in an indirect way. You can't say that I opened the hood and I got five more miles, or I opened the hood and I got ten more miles out of this out of this vehicle, or a hundred more hours out of this tractor in its life cycle. But collectively over time. It's like soil health getting back to that. If you build your soil health, you build your nutrition, you do all of that, then you're going to get a ROI, and that's more of an indirect ROI, and the agronomists don't talk about it that way, but it is. All right, so if I build up my soil health, if I build up my organic matter, then what's going to happen is that I'm going to have more water-holding capacity. So if we get 100 degrees and no rain for two weeks, my crop has a much better chance of of mitigating those conditions and surviving and producing a yield all right then if i had lower organic matter now so the thing is that so that's indirect so i went to no till i'm doing all this and and who knows all right last year i lost my crop to the drop or maybe this year i won't lose it even though it'll be dry because whatever so the thing is that but i want you to look at every piece of equipment that you have on the farm and then I, and, and lots of times what they'll do is in the owner's manual, they'll say severe duty, but they don't really qualify what severe duty is. Like on a vehicle's so out towing and this and that, well, that could be severe duty, but you have to keep in mind that all types of use is severe duty. So I would change Charlotte's oil more often on her zx2 and still today on her escape than i would on my fiesta because i'm running highway and she's doing a lot of cold start she's doing a lot of transient matter of fact i had a very very faithful listener from up in british columbia and he has a uh, uh, a piece of i think it was a caterpillar piece of equipment and he had sent he'd sent me the maintenance schedule for it a couple of weeks back he took a picture of it and emailed it to me and on that particular, I think it was a cat Loader, all right, and uh, and uh, his name is John, and he uh, and they actually made a, a, a uh, different maintenance. It cut the maintenance schedule in half if you're above five thousand feet. So that was an excellent question he asked me, all right. And he says, "What do you think this is?" I never saw this. Well, what it basically boils down to is that you and it says and it said the maintenance for the oil. So let's say if it was, I don't remember what his, what his label said, let's say if it was 500 mile or 500 hours for oil change that they wanted if you're above 5,000 feet above 250 hours. So that gets back to the soil variability, the use variability, right? This happens to be an altitude variability. And I said to him that I felt that they were doing that with, with great level of confidence is because the combustion event on that diesel engine is not as efficient for a number of reasons at high altitude. Well at high altitude, even though it's turbocharged you're still getting less cylinder fill. Right? And then you're still having the same amount of fuel and because the differential in the in the in in between the low pressure region in the bore and the atmosphere is not going to be as great. So you're going to basically in essence, why John I think it was John maybe it was I don't remember if it was John, forgive me, whether it was John Deere case, I don't, I don't recall. But um I remember at the time, or well, I knew at the time. But what's happening is that you are polluting the oil more because you're having a less efficient, a less efficient combustion event. That means you're going to have some raw fuel, more fuel wash past the rings on the cylinder wall it's going to dilute into the oil and the oil is going to lose its lubricity so the take-home message here is that and i'll come back to my wife all right to charlotte that i would qualify not terrible but i would qualify her as severe duty or, or probably a better way of me saying it more severe than more severe than my car even though i put literally put three times the mileage every year on it all right so i want you to look at your vehicles and your fleet on the farm i want you to well, i'm asking you it would be it would behoove you. is probably a better way for me to say it you look at the vehicles look at your farm equipment look at this tractor look at this piece of farm equipment i know a lot of guys have a lot of equipment on their farm and each has a different use cycle and in engineering we call it a duty cycle and even if it doesn't have a different duty cycle it has a different use on it so if the engine has got a lot of cold starts on so you have a a utv an atv on the farm that's a whole different regiment than an irrigation pump that's going to start and run for 24 hours all right and then each so so and it and just like i was saying from the beginning when the people from the midwest went out to oklahoma and texas to farm and they brought their their farming techniques with the moldboard plow and that was native grasslands back over there and uh i'm not going to get into it really wasn't meant to be farmed the way it was but that that's well whatever so the thing basically is is that is that this variability. So you may have two pieces of the same equipment. That's why I use the story of my wife and I having basically the same cars. All right, but two different uses, two different maintenance schedules, two different wear rates. All right. So because different her transmission fluid versus my transmission fluid. All right. She had a zillion more shifts than I had. So you really need to look at this, and then you need to to say, okay, fine then this is something that I'm going to have to change or alter or make this a more intensive management routine. So just like I was saying is that when you farm and you have to manage your, your, your soil type, I cannot farm the way somebody does who has six or seven or ten percent seven percent organic matter and 16%, 16 16 uh, uh, their CEC is 16. All right. I cannot farm that way. If he came to my farm and did not recognize that, he could be the most wonderful farmer in the world. All right. But did not recognize what my organic matter and my CEC is. And let's say we're at the same latitude, the same, all right, whatever the thing is that uh, he would probably fail. And then I would probably fail on, and uh, because I would be farming as if it was three percent organic matter and six percent ccc C- all right was so CEC um, so is six so anyway not percent but anyway uh so so i you need to look at that and i you need to look at each piece of equipment and you don't have to go nuts over this all right but if you're just looking in the manual for a car or a truck a or combine or what have you all right the thing is that it's not going to be, you're not going to have the right service procedure for it. It's not, it's, it's not going to be correct for that type of use because the type of use that is, that they, that, that they identify in a service procedure, all right, is for what they, what they qualify as normal use. So the thing is that, I mean, uh, you may have to grease your front end more because you're turning more often right? You're feeding cattle, you're turning, cutting the wheel, you're cleaning out a barn, right? Whatever it may be, right? So the take-home message here, as I said before already using the same term, is that you don't have to be, go nuts over it, but you have to look at it and say, what kind of duty cycle use cycles that we use duty cycle in engineering use cycles this piece of equipment have where is it seeing more wear than the other piece of equipment and then you need to tighten up that maintenance schedule for those areas that are seeing more use more more cold starts what have you all right uh you have to look at it and say all right fine i'm going to get less wear out of the tires on this than i'm going to get on this because even like when i was doing work with firestone there was I mean there was no way for you to really quantify it Oh, I got fifty thousand miles on this tire. So they would so the industry, the tire and the agricultural tire industry goes by by uh, hours, engine hours. Well, if you're feeding cattle, let's say you got a big dairy operation, you're feeding cattle, you're moving manure, you're accelerating, you're not burning rubber. Remember it's gonna weigh the time more. You're turning tight turns, left, right, backing up, doing this and that, whatever. All right you know you could have the same amount of engine hours on on the on the tractor and extreme and and substantially more wear on the tire than a guy who's out there and just running straight in the field doing doing field work doing row crop work with that same piece of equipment and that same type of tire so a lot of people don't look at that this way uh, the amount of shifts on a transmission, the amount of times the wheel is turned, a manual transmission, how many clutches, clutch steps in and out, you're depressing pr- the clutch, moving the shift lever. And if you alter your thought process, and if you. And if you alter your maintenance process for that and your service, your service process and service procedures or routine, whatever you want to call it, is that you will get a, a wonderful indirect ROI. And if you do not alter that, if you say, oh, I got a whole thing over here, we're going to do it all the same, right? then what's going to happen is those profits are going to fly out of the farm shop door the garage door of the farm shop with so many profits fly out of there and people don't realize it because you're going to have either additional failures mechanical failures problems issues what have you uh or, or where because you're not recognizing in just like the soil variability the micro uh, the microbiology variability in a field you're not recognizing the use variability in that piece of equipment and even if you don't have a farm and you and your wife have cars and she works in town and you work 50 miles away. You have to, well, vice versa, then you have to, she doesn't work at all. She's, she's, a, she's a, home, a, a homekeeper, wonderful, right? She's taking the kids to school, taking them to the soccer. And, and you said, well, she doesn't put mileage on like five miles to school. You're killing that sucker. She's killing it. She's 10,000 times harder on it. Not saying that she's a hard driver. That use is 10,000 times exponentially more wear than you getting on the highway and driving 60 miles one way to work. right so just keep that in mind and if you have any questions on it please feel free to reach out to me at hot rod farmer at farm machinery digest.com and just like a high yield farmer manages his crop for his soil and his conditions then a high yield, meaning a, a farmer or a person that gets the most mileage, the most hours, the minimal amount of failures, the minimal amount of, of breakdowns or expense with their equipment is because they're highly managing the maintenance schedule and the routine and not taking one fixed thing of saying that is basically it that's all i'm doing because that's what i did before or that's what the book says so you have a blessed blessed day and i thank you so much for tuning in then the hot rod Farmers is pulling for you the american farmer and rancher and uh be safe and god willing we'll talk next week Bye bye